This is SC Featured. This is the power of sports. It's an iconic black and white image, a woman running on a street in a gray baggy sweatsuit. She's wearing a runner's bib on her chest, number 261. A man in a dark sport coat is trying to grab her and those around them look on stunned. It happened during the 1967 Boston Marathon. A record field of 601 starters, brave chilly winds and a steady drizzle in the 71st Boston Marathon. The world's most famous foot race even attracts a leggy lady, Kay Switzer of Syracuse. Officials tried to jostle her off the road. Welcome to SC Featured. I'm Jen Latta. In this episode, we'll introduce you to Kay Switzer, or Catherine Switzer, the first woman to officially run the Boston Marathon 50 years ago. Back then, women participating in sports weren't so much frowned upon as they were practically non-existent. There were just a few sports, actually, that were considered proper for a female to play. Tennis, figure skating, gymnastics, just to name a few. Certainly long-distance running, far too strenuous, especially if you actually had to sweat during it. Catherine Switzer saw no such boundaries, brought up in suburban Washington, D.C. by parents who strongly encouraged her participation in sports. My father said, you don't want to be a cheerleader. Cheerleaders cheer for other people. You want people to cheer for you. The game is on the field. Life is to participate, not to spectate. It was at Syracuse University, though, that Switzer caught the bug to run competitively. She badgered her coach into taking her to run Boston, since her coach talked about the race all the time. Reporter Julie Foudy, a member of the 1999 U.S. national soccer team that won the Women's World Cup, visited Catherine in her home in New Paltz, New York. It's about a two-hour drive north of New York City. They shot an on-camera interview for an SC-featured TV piece. Once the camera lights turned off, the two ladies continued to chat. Catherine, I wish people could see our beautiful view right now because it's gorgeous. The snow-covered hills, the trees, your home in New Paltz. Thank you for having us. I'm glad you're here. You know, um, we love this place so much. We are really happy to be here because we can train on these trails and tracks on the famous Mohonk Mountain and in the Shangung Ridge. Climbing, kayaking, cycling, everything goes on here. But one of the greatest things is looking out the window and just seeing the wildlife. I mean, it's like living in a zoo. <laughs> Deers, coyotes, as I saw on your husband's computer this morning. Yes, and also um, the wild turkeys, all kinds of animals. The little critters are just great. So you're still running these hills on the carriage tracks, you said. That's one reason we moved to the Hudson Valley is because I wanted to um, get off the road. I wanted traffic free and I wanted trails that were challenging, but also the soft dirt surface, Julie, is really wonderful for your knees and your legs because it, um, I, I think it really helps my longevity. The pounding on a hard road surface really is, takes its toll on anybody. Yeah, I know that yeah. right now. I'm feeling it today. <laughs> That's right. You just did a half marathon. Good for marathon you. I got up from our interview and I was like, oh gosh, I can't move right now. You wait till tomorrow. It's Oh, it's going to be worse. I know. Doms. I remember that. Okay, let's rewind, if you would, because some of the things we, of course, talk about in the feature is how different things were when you were growing up for girls playing sports and how accepting you were your parents were, of you playing, which I look back and think, ah, oh, they remind me of my parents, by the way. Mm -hmm. But that time where it wasn't acceptable at all for girls to play sports, why were your parents so different? 
My parents are really different because they, they actually were kind of conservative in many traditional ways. You know, my dad had a, a military career. My mother was a school teacher, went on to become a guidance counselor. But they really had lived globally, and they always were looking exteriorly. And they also themselves were products of opportunity. They were the first kids in their families ever to get a college education, mm. and they had to fight for it. You know, my mom had to get a scholarship and earn her way academically, and my father had to pay his way through on a, uh, uh, a scholarship also from the ROTC. Um, and they knew that education was really important, and they knew that you had to look forward. And when, when they saw me struggling uh, going to high school, and I was very young, I was only 12, and it was time for high school already, no intermediate schools in those days, this huge leap for this little prepubescent kid to go into to, uh, a big high school, um, uh, I wanted to be accepted so badly. And I think that they saw... Uh, that my choice of maybe choosing cheerleading was not what they had in <laughs> mind for their daughter. And my father said, you should play field hockey. And he helped me to run that first mile a day um, to get ready for the field hockey team. And that was wonderful because I had a team. I had a kind of community acceptance. But, right. but most of all, I had my self-esteem and, and my belief in myself. In that he actually taped it out in the backyard, which just cracks me up. I was like, oh, maybe I might try that with my kids. I'm well, going to tape it out. Here's, here's the reason I love to tell the story about my parents. First of all, yeah, my father made it a game and a challenge. He said, I know you could do that. Let's measure it together, that kind of thing. Right. He would also say things like, I bet you could get my evening paper in less than 20 seconds. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Smart you, know, man. He, you know, he made it like fun and he got he got a lot of services. Um, <laughs> Taking same, care of. It was the same way with the yard work. I know we can clean up this whole rock right. pile in, in 15 minutes if you help me. <laughs> that kind of thing. He sensed you had a competitive streak in you, I see. Yes, but he also made you feel proud that you could do it. So this is what I tell people. Every kid needs to be told they can do something mm. and they need to be given the opportunity to try. And they need to be say, say, I bet you can do that. I bet you could make that team. Oh, you know, I know you could run a mile a day. I believe in you. And that's what my parents kept saying. And every time I did it, they'd say, that's great. You know, add a girl. And every kid thrives on that. You know, what we didn't talk about in the feature is what was their reaction to 1967 and that Boston Marathon? Oh, my gosh, it was really amazing because I thought, you know, my maybe they're going to think, you know, Catherine, you really shouldn't have done that. Um, but basically, oh, they were so supportive. It was unbelievable. My mother, who really uh, was low-key compared to my father, was um, really, really adamant about uh, protecting me and saying, saying, that's ridiculous. You should have been absolutely allowed to run. You've done the training. You know, that's ridiculous that they would exclude you. She was very feisty. So prior to the race, with prior, you getting in. Yeah, well, of course, you know, they knew I was running, but they didn't know I was going to run the Boston Marathon. And it wasn't until 10 o'clock at night, the night before the race, when I was in Boston, I thought, <laughs> I thought that ah, was classic. I better call my parents. This is what? Weird. Not this... until 10 p.m. the night before? I know, I know. Don't kids kill you, you know? <laughs> And so I said to my dad, I was uh, in Boston. I just wanted to let him know that I was going to run the Boston Marathon the next day. Well, of course, he had no idea what the Boston Marathon was. Um, and he said, 
well, kid, you know, if, if you're there, I'm sure you've trained for it. I'm sure you'll be ready. And I said, well, I'm a little nervous, Dad. It's pretty far. And he said, well, how far is it? And I said, uh, it's you know, 26 miles, 385 yards. And the phone went silent. And he goes, well, I guess you're ready for it. Else you wouldn't be there. Oh, You know, isn't that him. great? And he I said, he said go, you just go for it, honey. We're with you all the way. Aww. It was really great. It gives know? me the chills. Yeah, really sweet. There was never one ounce of doubt. Really, it's like, really sweet. What's possible? Yeah, and for uh, and for every uh, race, you know, I would call them before, and they, they knew then that Boston was a big deal, and I'd ask them to do good mental telepathy for me and everything else. But what about when they saw the photos from well, the marathon? Well, now this is this is another thing where you could strangle your kids. Okay, so we finished the race, um, and, and we we went to a friend's house who who kindly gathered us up at the at the finish line. And we got a shower and got changed our clothes and got some food in us. And and uh, and then we started driving back to Syracuse. It never occurred to me to call my parents and tell them how I did. Now, of course, there they were in, outside of Washington, D.C. And the phone was ringing off the hook. You know, well, your daughter is done. Are you seeing the pictures? It's all on the evening news. And, and they don't know where I am. You know, they don't know what's happened. They, they oh, you know, and they're getting mixed reports. And there's no cell phones back then. No, and they're getting mixed reports that she didn't finish as she did finish. And, you know, they're thinking, oh, God, what's wrong? Is, you know, is she floating around the streets of Boston? So when I called, it was one of those, oh, thank God moments. And, and do you know what's going on moments? You know, because I didn't know all of this ruckus was taking place. It was amazing. It wasn't until midnight or so when we were driving back from Boston that night. We stopped at Albany, you know, on the way back to Syracuse University um, to get some ice cream and some coffee at the, on the thruway. And we, we could barely walk. You know, we were crippled right. getting out of the car. We just were so stiff from the cold and the race. And when we walked in, there was one guy sitting at the lunch counter reading the newspapers. And we could see front and back the pictures of us. And I said, Look at the paper. And I ran over to the guy and I said, Look, man, look at you. I got to look at your paper. I got to look at your paper. And he threw it at me like I'd been on fire. And I said, That's us. That's us. And he leaned in and said, Wow, this is cool. You know, um, the guys. And that's the first recognition yes, you had of, Oh was, my gosh, they caught it on camera. We thought that it was a non event. We just thought that, you know, they were going to write something the next day in the paper and say, you know, that this girl barged into the Boston Marathon and, and um, uh, you know, that maybe that they would have a picture because we knew the press truck was in front of us, but we had no idea it was going to be everywhere. And um, the guys, of course, just loved it. They were, they were like, you know, they were like roosters in a barnyard. Woohoo, you know. Um, but I got really quiet because I thought, oh, boy, you know, my life is going to change. And, and honestly, it was sort of like just out of the blue again because I had no idea. We had no idea. We had no idea all the commotion was going on. Because you hadn't <laughs> called your parents. Well, and we, yeah, we hadn't turned on the news. It would never occur to us to turn on the radio or the TV or anything. <laughs> TV was kind of new in those. I mean, people, you know, a lot of people didn't even have TVs. So, okay, <laughs> we will get back to that iconic photo. Um, but let's rewind a little bit. Sure. Take us back to that moment of anxiety of not knowing if you're actually going to make it to the start line and whether they're going to recognize. Because you said in the pen, all the guys were like, oh, I wish my, my mom, I mean, my, my girlfriend could be here and be inspired by this. I wish my wife ran more. This is so great. They were super supportive. 
the guys were always super supportive. And so even with the guys I trained with and, of course, my coach and, and, and at the start line in Boston. And, and when there were a series of coincidences, Julie, that you couldn't repeat, that one was that it was snowing and sleeting. It was terrible, con terrible right. conditions. And instead of wearing this cute shorts and top outfit that I had on, <laughs> I had it on, but I also had on my bulky gray sweatsuit like everybody else did. We wore everything we had. We were freezing. It's freezing, yeah. And from a distance, with the snow and the sleet, you, you couldn't see males from females. I mean, we all looked alike. And certainly the guys, when we were warming up, would look up and they'd say, oh, gosh, I wish my wife would run, you know, wish my girl, good luck to you. And they were really wonderful. And in the starting pen, um, I, yeah, I was nervous that, that, that maybe an official would say something to me. And, um, but, but they, all they want to do is check off your bib numbers. So we all held up our sweatshirts and they just checked off our bib numbers and pushed us into the starting pen. Right. And at that point, my coach Arnie turned to me and he said, see, no problem. He said, you were anxious for nothing. Of course, they don't mind. And I yeah. thought, I don't think that official looked in my face. You know, it was, that was my feeling. Um, but, but again, I said, well, maybe it is okay. You know, so I, and of course I was anxious. But then the starting gun fired, and off we went, and it was it was great, and I was just one of the one of the team, right until mile two. Until mile two, and that's when the press truck went by us, honking their horn, making us move over. It started behind the runners, in those days, if you can imagine, and it was a big field, you know, almost six hundred runners, <laughs> <laughs> huge compared to how many today? Uh, I think they're pushing twenty five thousand at Boston now, and that's all the roads can take. Yes, the press truck came booping, uh, bo bo beeping their horn, making us move over. We moved over, and then they were sh sh filming backwards you know, from the back of the flatbed truck. And we were waving at them, and it was a fun moment for a second. But then the official's truck came along. On that truck uh, was the, the um, co-race director, Jock Semple. Uh, the journalists were teasing him and saying, hey, there's a girl in your race. Look at her. Because by that time, my hair was flying and I was, you know. There's a broad there's out a there. There's a broad in there. I love that. And they looked up my number and they were teasing him saying, I wonder what her mother calls her jock. Kurt, Carrie, Kim. <laughs> and Jock lost his temper and he jumped off this bus and went after me. And I didn't even, I didn't see all this because it was behind me. I only heard him at the last minute. I heard his shoes on the pavement. You know, completely different from the dun -dun 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 of running shoes. Yeah. I heard the scraping sound like you hear a dog at the last minute. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, I, somebody grabbed me and I turned and he just threw me back and screamed at me, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers and tried to pull off my bib numbers. Um, and I jumped away and, 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 and slightly sh shrieked and, and um, Arnie screamed at him, uh, leave her alone, leave her alone. I've trained her. She's okay. And he said, you stay out of this. And he swatted Arnie, my coach. And then as he came back and grabbed me again, then my boyfriend, the, uh, burly football player, um, threw a cross body block into him <laughs> and love set him flying. And, um, oh, and then Arnie, shot. Arnie's eyes got as big as saucers and he said, run like hell. <laughs> and, Get out and of here. the street we went. Now, now, you know, I, I say this. We love telling the story. You're laughing. I'm laughing. It's funny yeah. in the retelling. But at the time, it was really scary. And it was mean. And I was humiliated and embarrassed and um, really scared. I was really scared. And I tr um, um, then, then we, you know, I, I kind of coalesced. And, and we were all really rather shaken. The press truck kept staying beside us, asking us aggressive questions. And then I started to get angry, which was really the best thing. 
And that's when I turned to Arnie and I said, hey, I don't know where you stand in this now, Arnie, because now, you know, I'm getting you in a lot of trouble here. Mm -hmm. um, but I've got to finish the race, no matter what happens. I've got to finish the race. And if you can't finish and I can finish, I'm going to finish the race. And if I have to finish on my hands and my knees, I'm going to finish this mm -hmm. race. And he said, okay, 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 let's just get it together and <laughs> slow down. I think Arnie knew exactly what was in my heart at that moment, which was, if, if I don't finish this race, nobody's going to believe I'm serious. Nobody's going to believe in women. Nobody's going to believe women can do it. Um, I have to finish the race now, no matter what. And that's a, that's a lot to ask a marathoner. It's a lot to ask a 20-year-old. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot to ask a runner, though, because anything can happen in a marathon. Right. And, you, you know, it, it, anything can happen. You can, you can get diarrhea. You, you, a dog can come out and bite you. You know, mm -hmm. you can get the bonk and just can't finish. You know, you can, you know, sprain your ankle. You know, whatever. That's um, part of the challenge. But the point is, is um, I had to finish no matter what. And that was a lot of pressure. Making the decision was amazing to me at 20 um, because um, I look back on that and say, boy, that was a gutsy thing to do, to make that decision. I often say, well, I had a lifetime of running and empowerment behind me. That's probably why I could do that. And the second thing is, is I truly, truly believed in running. Running had made me feel better and more welcome than anything. And I believed I should be there. And I believed other women could be there. And I didn't want to ever disappoint anybody and disappoint other women. And I knew it would set women so far back if, if I didn't finish. Yeah. I just had to finish. When SC Featured continues, why the number 261 means so much, not just to Katherine Switzer, but to female athletes all over the world. Welcome back to SC Featured, I'm Jen Latta. The photo of Katherine Switzer being confronted by the Boston Marathon race director happened in 1967, long before social media and the internet made photographs and a message almost instantaneous and what we now call viral. Yet this photo and this message did resonate around the world, and empowering women soon became Catherine Switzer's calling, as she explained to our Julie Foudy. Now it's easy to get a photo out, a message out. There's no Twitter, right? Are, are you surprised with the traction and the impact that one moment had? No. Because... And its ability to get out there. Well, let me say this. First of all, it is a galvanizing photo to see a woman running and then being attacked by an official. And then the punchline is the official himself getting bounced out of the race by burly boyfriend. <laughs> so the social context has changed. It was a galvanizing picture in 1967 because a lot of people thought it was funny. And the, in fact, the, the caption first read, who says chivalry is dead? Hmm. Girl running in marathon is saved by burly boyfriend. Okay, it was a night on the white charger. It's a whole Shakespearean ha-ha drama, right? Mm -hmm. Then it changed because people said, but she finished the race. Why should somebody try to throw her out or prevent her from doing that? So then it became a political photo. And then in the feminist movement, of course, it became a very women's rights photos that see this as an example of women trying to do something in the male domain and being prevented from doing so, um, which was a little unfair because, in fact, in running, the men who ran were always wonderful to the women runners. It was a very overworked, tired official 
who it was trying to protect his race, who had a short fuse. Yes, he had a short fuse, um, who, who created this, this photograph. And now it's become a photograph that is all about fearlessness because everybody in their lives has been told that you are not welcome or you're the wrong color or the wrong race or the uh, wrong intellect or, you know, whatever. They marginalize you in some way and try to bring you down. Everybody has been put in this situation at one time or the other in their lives. And then you go and do it anyway, and you become fearless. You overcome that adversity. Mm. So suddenly now the photo means 261 fearless, meaning the bib number the official tried to steal now has become a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity. And that, of course, is the basis for the new nonprofit that I have founded called 261 Fearless, which is designed to do exactly that, to go out and show people that they can overcome their fears and become fearless and become empowered. Where does that fearlessness come from? I think it comes from running, believe it or not. I, I wouldn't say I was always fearless. I was always um, persistent. I was, my father used to make a joke about, he used to call me the broken record because I would never give up on things. You know, get stuck in the groove. Da, 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 da. <laughs> But but um, when you run every day and you have a sense or a dose of empowerment every day, or I like to say a victory under your belt every day nobody can take away from you, when you get to a moment when somebody tries to take it away from you, you have the guts to fight for it. And I, I think... Um, I think we all have to learn this. You know, that's why I try so hard and I try to tell parents to give your kids or any kid you know an opportunity mm. and why I try so hard to give women this sense because most women are not raised this way and um, more and more they are now and it's great to see. But if you can be um, full of confidence and empowerment all your life, you really can do anything. Mm-hmm. You said something earlier that struck me. You said most women outside of this country still live in a world where fear is a very big part of their day, right? They can't live fearless. They can't, um, but maybe they can. Maybe they. that's what I hope 261 Fearless can do for mm -hmm. them. This is my foundation, um, which is designed to empower women through running. If we can reach them even virtually to have them run, if we can get them to just go out and put one foot in front of the other or in their homes to put one foot in front of the other and they can just get that small sense of empowerment, then you take the next step. It's, you know, it's like running. You run the first mile and then you say, mm, I wonder if I can run two. <laughs> and then it's 5Ks and then it's 10Ks. When did you first notice the women running with 261, riding it on their arms... And this is really before, this is before the foundation had even started. All of a sudden, you just see this organic movement, right? It was absolutely amazing. I would say this happened at about five, six years ago. All of a sudden, people began sending me photographs, you know, through uh, email or even in the mail, um, also with a letter and a message. And the letters were all incredible. Some tear-stained, okay, the paper ones. But they all were about... Um, I never thought I could run, and then I began to run, and running has changed my life. It has made me fearless. I now can do anything. But they kept using this word fearless, mm -hmm. and they said, and because of you and because of the way I feel, I am now wearing 
261 on my back, even though the bib number on my front is 8,592 uh, in my first marathon or my first New York or my first Boston. Um, or they would then ink it on their wrist or their arm. And it was Julie when they started sending me pictures of their tattoos with 261. Jeez. It was scary. You know, I said, okay, when a person tattoos themselves, this really resonates. And what does it mean? And it means just what I said. Everybody has been told at one time or other in their life they're not welcome. And they go and do it anyway. And they succeed and they become fearless. And running, though, was the instantaneous vehicle that made it happen. So you have 125 people running with you. I know. It's at the insane. Boston. Yes. All raising money for 261 Fearless, Fearless, which is essentially a startup foundation that's just begun and is a ton of work, as we've been talking about today, that you're taking on. And here is this opportunity to launch this incredible thing that could globally transform women's lives. It is amazing that the opportunity of running Boston um, came to me about five, five or six years ago, way before 261 came to me. And I, I thought, gosh, if I'm in shape and I'm healthy, I'd really like to give it a shot because I'd like to come back to the Boston now that is 50-50 women, uh, men, honor the streets to change my life. And the Boston Athletic Association um, really has been amazing in um believing in what we're doing and has given us a number of charity bibs so that we now have, amazingly enough, um, they're not all charity bibs. Some of these people have qualified and still want to raise money and run with us, but we have 118 women and seven men who are raising money for 261 Fearless because they know what running has done for them. And they want to pass this sense on to other women globally. These are fearless people now who are raising money to create a foundation that helps us to reach fearful people and empower them um, around the world. R running has changed whole societies. You look at Kenya and Ethiopia in right. particular. Those, those women were third-class citizens, many of them, before they began running. And they take their prize money back to, to the village. They completely changed the village, you know, sanitize water and build schools. And, right. and, and uh, educate the kids, um, you know, inoculate children, you know, that changes the social fabric. Yeah. If we could do that all over the world through the simple act of putting one foot in front of the other, it's going to be really, really amazing. And, and that's what 261 Fearless is Is that about. the ultimate vision? It's global transformation, yeah. which I love. Sure, why not? You know, I, I, I thought that it was one day, and I met, said this to an irascible journalist in 1967 at the, at the finish line of the Boston Marathon when he said, what are you trying to prove? He said, you know, this is just a one-off deal, right? And I said, no, one day women's running is going to be as popular and publicizable as men's. And I said that in 67. I would never have imagined in the United States that there are more women runners now than there are men runners, and that, that this is, this is transformations happening globally. If it's happened here, if it's happened in Kenya, and it's happening all over the world, why can't it go to other places, which are, are very tough for women culturally and socially? Right. It was tough for women culturally and socially in this country, not like it is in the Mideast, right. but it wasn't easy right. in the 60s, and we changed all of that. And I think running has become a social revolution in leading that charge. Do you sleep, Catherine? Not much. <laughs> 
Good Lord. Will you please sleep before the boss? I will try. I'm really kind of worried about this. Yes. Balance. <laughs> balance. You, you know cannot what? do it all. That's another thing we women need to I learn. Know. We, gotta, we try know, and do it all. We're always talking about the life, work-life balance. Honest to God, I, you know, I dream of it. I was talking to a friend of mine who has just retired from the university and she's painting and she's planting petunias and she's cleaning her house. My house is a mess. This house is a mess. There's stacks of stuff everywhere. Um, and I long to, to kind of have that happen. But here's the thing I feel. Wait, what a, a, a amazing woman, Shelly Lazarus, told me once, dust has no emotional content. <laughs> I was like, you're right. They're like, it's okay if your house isn't clean. It's yeah, like, no, you're but right. it's the clutter that drains me, you know, gosh. Um, but here's the thing. There's a lot to do, Julie, you know, and people need us. And if you have the strength and the capability, um, I believe that we have to take responsibility for our actions. And I need to believe we need to take responsibility for change. And if we can do it, we should do it. Um, so I really believe in 261 Fearless. It might be something I won't see the fruition of in my lifetime, the true fruition of. But I've got a terrific team of women. Um, there are only four of us. <laughs> But they are um, in their mid-40s, and it's a perfect age for somebody who is looking for a legacy on top of the world and has boundless energy. And right now, we're all in that category. Uh, and I think they're going to take the flame and run with it. And I really am excited about what we can do. Thank you for letting us invade your home and take over your life for a day. You're welcome. I can't wait to watch you rock that marathon. Oh, dear Ella. Uh, anything can happen in a race, but I'm going to give it my best. Time. Chili cheese dog at mile five. That's right. my one piece of key advice for you. <laughs> okay. Do it. I won't have a chili cheese dog. But <laughs> I will not be doing that. I will that. try my best. <laughs> Thanks, Catherine. Thank you, Julie. According to the 261 Fearless website, there are clubs organized in nine countries, including Malta and Brazil. Catherine Switzer continues to run, splitting her time between upstate New York and Wellington, New Zealand. On SC Featured next week, Chicago Cubs first baseman Anthony Rizzo. Before he eliminated more than a century of heartbreak on the north side, Rizzo fought Hodgkin's lymphoma at the tender age of 18. From the second that I was a quote-unquote cancer patient, I said to everyone, do not treat me like that. Treat me the same. Remember to subscribe to the SC Featured Podcast in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Until next time, I'm Jen Latta. Thanks for listening.